Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Ann Nelson, the author of a very important new book, The Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Religious Right. The book examines the history of a secretive group called the Council for National Policy. So, Anne Nelson, thank you for joining us so much. Thanks for having me. So, Anne, how is your spirit? What leaps to mind is bloody but unbowed. I find myself praying a lot. And in the past, I've written about the civil wars in El Salvador and Guatemala. I've written about the anti-Nazi resistance in Berlin and occupied Paris. So I've written about people who were trying to do the right thing under impossible circumstances. And some mornings I get up and feel that that's where we are. But the interesting thing is that they didn't give up when it looked hopeless. And I suppose that's where I am right now. I I don't seem to be giving up, but I can't say I'm brimming with optimism. Well, you know, to me, uh, there's a difference in optimism and hope. Desmond Tutu taught me that. Optimism is a feeling or a mood or how the weather is or how your schedule is. Hope is a decision because of this thing that many of us call faith. It's about not giving up and uh, continuing on. So I'm glad to hear uh, that, that you're unbowed <laughs> and going forward. Your book is about a secretive group called the Council for National Policy that essentially created the modern religious right. that So many of us have been engaged with for a long time. If many of us haven't heard of the Council for National Policy, we have heard of some of their members, uh, Mike Pence, Kellyanne Conway, Steve Bannon. Set the context for us. When was this Council for National Policy founded? Where did it come from? And who were some of the key founders? So it, it was officially founded in 1981, but it had roots in the South. And I should say that I, I'm from Oklahoma. So I saw some of these social contexts as I grew up. And there were evangelists, including televangelists like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, who were making a lot of money, not just from their television collection plates, but also from their academies that they set up to help people avoid integrating schools. And so at a certain point, the IRS decided, along with the federal government, that you couldn't have a segregated school and still have tax exemption. And they realized that they needed to fight policy at the level of the federal courts and the federal government. So they got behind Reagan in a big way in 1980. And in 1981, they founded the Council for National Policy, along with people from the fossil fuels industries in Oklahoma, Texas, and Louisiana, in order to promote their vision of our country and our society in a strategic way. You have a powerful summary here I want to read and ask you to unpack. From the beginning, its goals represented a convergence of the interests of these three groups, a retreat from advances in civil and political rights for women and minorities, tax cuts for the wealthy and raw political power, operating from the shadows, its members who would number some 400 spent the next four decades courting, buying, and bullying fellow Republicans, gradually achieving what was in effect a leveraged buyout 
of the GOP. That kind of is powerful. Unpack that for us. Well, what's important for people to remember is that our country wasn't always like this. In the past, and including in my lifetime and in my memory, you had Republicans in Congress who would work across the aisle with Democrats to pass legislation that served the common good. And you had the Environmental Protection Agency founded under Nixon. You had Eisenhower, who warned against the military-industrial complex. And these people, the people who are affiliated with the Council for National Policy, wanted to purge the moderate Republicans from the party. They wanted to create this vast chasm and uh, antagonism in our society, this gulf And you see it in Congress now, where you have bills that are supposed to benefit the entire public, and you have this hard core of Republicans opposing them and torpedoing measures that would benefit their own voters as part of kind of a a campaign of spite and a way to enhance their own power at the expense of the public. And I think this is a national tragedy, but it has been part of the plan all along. And in the book, I describe step by step how they've done this in political campaigns and in Congress against moderate Republicans. And you see it in overdrive right now since January 6th. I think you're right. A lot of younger people, my own sons, don't know about a time when there was genuine bipartisanship. Uh, I remember my first best friend in the Senate was Mark Hatfield, an Oregon Republican but who led the battle against the war in Vietnam and fought against hunger on a global scale as a Republican. He wouldn't exist now in the party. So they've been very successful in focusing this party. Let's talk about how this thing is organized. You're right, CNP coordinates the political activism of many member organizations, including National Rifle Association, the Federal Society, and the Family Research Council. When and where do they meet? What are its goals? And you describe their vision, I like this, as a dystopian blend of theocracy and plutocracy. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of their language suggests that they believe they have a direct line to God. And God gives them operating instructions about how they should control the lives of the rest of us. I find that a theologically incredibly arrogant attitude. (laughs) And uh, I I should say unacceptable. In terms of the plutocracy, they don't believe that the wealthy should have to pay their fair share of taxes. They don't believe in any regulations on the environment or their business practices that would cut into their profits. And so it's a semi-feudal vision where they assume the goods and the production of our society, and they have the rest of the population working at their pleasure. It's so medieval, and it's so anti-democratic that it's, it's a little hard to believe. But I, I swear, uh, you can see in my book, I've got a thousand footnotes where I document every claim that I make. Well, your book is indeed well documented. So I made a phone call last night to a friend in preparation for our conversation today. His name is a Reverend Rob Shank. He was uh, president of Faith and Action in the Capitol. I said, Rob, I'm having this conversation tomorrow with Ann Nelson about all this. Do you know anything about this Council for National Policy? He said, Jim, I was on the board and I was in the meetings 
And he described it this way, very much confirming what you say in the book. This is where the marriage was made between money and religion. He talked about the money men, and they're all in your book, and he named them. He he told me what they said. And they were people who made a deal to say, you support us, and we'll support you on your concerns, gay marriage and abortion. He said, this is the group that made that marriage between money and religion. Well, that's what I suspected, but it's very interesting to hear Rubshank confirm it in so many words. And one of the interesting things is that, as I say in the book, the Koch brothers are deeply woven into the financial structure of this movement. And it's important to remember that David Koch had run for vice president on a libertarian ticket and got, you know, like 1% of the vote. And the libertarian ticket was totally laissez-faire about everything. It legalized abortion, it legalized prostitution, it legalized all drugs, and it bombed at the polls. Nobody was interested. So when they found that their own libertarian platform had no legs in terms of an election, they forged an alliance with people who were the opposite of libertarians, except in the realm of the financial issues that they cared about. So, you know, sometimes I think obsessively about the idea of Jesus in the temple with the money changers. And I say, what what on earth happened here? Well, Rob and you, I think, are due for a, a real conversation. Because here's what he said to me. He said, these economic people didn't care about the issues of gay marriage or abortion, but they needed a political base. They had their agenda, they had their policy vision, but they didn't have a base, and they saw a base here. And basically, they said, we'll be pro-family, meaning anti-gay, and pro-life, meaning anti-abortion, if you be pro-wealth. That was a deal. They made this deal. And he talked about transparent moments where the money people would say things like, I know you guys have problems with this. But I've got a gay chef, man. He is the best chef I've ever had. I don't care if he's gay, really. So in transparent moments, this was acknowledged that they didn't care, as you just said, about all these issues, except they made deals. They made a deal for a base. And, you know, another thing that just disturbs me profoundly is that the social issues they run on are built on an architecture of outright lies. And... If they can find an example anywhere, then they exaggerate it and distort it. And if they can't find an example, they make one up. And they are just as bad in terms of the conversation about abortion, because they're building their entire argument on the idea that Democrats want to execute newborn babies. They say so in so many words, and it's been repeated by everyone from Ted Cruz to, to Donald Trump in, in the language that they've, they've put together. And when I think about my friends and classmates in Oklahoma, these are people who don't read the New York Times. They go to church and they're being told these lies. And of course, they will say, I can't vote for a Democrat because who wants to kill newborn babies? I don't. The, the problem is that it's just not true. And it's being used to manipulate people in ways that hurt them in the long run. Rob said they know it's not true. This is all about money. He said the braggadocio, it's like all what they talk about, he said, at these meetings, 
is who has the best and biggest private plane? Who has the largest wingspan for their private plane? He said it's haughty, it's arrogant. And he said the religious leaders, as you pointed out a few minutes ago, these religious leaders, let's call them what they say they are, have also become millionaires. They have money. And all the talk, he said, is about money. They're pro-wealth, as long as the pro-wealth people are pro-life and pro-family, but they don't even believe what they say. And so Rob said, this is about the biblical text. The love of money is the root of all evil. He said, they demonstrate the love of money is the root of all evil. White, wealthy men having money to get political power to dominate whoever. Well, I think that's the walk they walk. And even in talk they talk, I don't hear a lot of talk about the principles of the New Testament. It doesn't come up very often in their rhetoric, oddly enough. Well, the fact that even the honesty among them is they're using good people, people that we all know and grew up with, who have concerns about abortion and those issues. And there are genuine concerns, but telling the truth about those things and finding a way forward is different than just telling lies, which they do even in those meetings he was saying. So they're using people of faith for a constituency to support their money. It's very simple. It's simple, but they also have successfully executed a complex strategy. One of their superpowers is <laughs> that because they present themselves as good old boys from the South, in many cases, people underestimate them. And I have a lot of criticisms for the good people within the Beltway for not taking them seriously and for also allowing them to implement their highly sophisticated analysis of how our political system actually works. And in a nutshell, they're the ones that have realized that one key to power in the United States is in the state houses. So now the Republicans control 30 state houses in the country, the majority. They're the ones that realize that the Senate represents disproportionately the interests of lightly populated states. So they've concentrated their efforts in states they could win. They understand the Electoral College, whereas the Democrats have tended to be highly focused on the popular vote, which is fine and good, except that's not how victory in our country is determined. And you can say that there are all kinds of flaws in, in the founding father's vision of how power should be distributed. But until you legally redress those flaws, that's how the system works. You're right. They knew their policy priorities would fail at the ballot box. So they would need a new set of strategies and they would need to be tightly organized. And you describe how they build leadership networks. They put all the people together. Then they dominate media. And then they have, as you're saying, an electoral strategy that works for them. Yeah. And one of the most tragic elements in this for me is the media component. Because uh, if you look at the, the middle of the country where, where my people come from, the local newspapers have died off in massive numbers over the last 20 years. This gave them a huge opening. You have state houses where the, the state house reporters don't have jobs anymore. So in a lot of cases, these communities and these policies go unexamined by critical minds. 
And the vacuum has been filled by these these fundamentalist and right-wing news outlets. So many people are familiar with Fox News and the Sinclair television stations, which blanket the middle of a country. But you've also got very powerful networks of fundamentalist and right-wing talk radio. Then you have this proliferation of online platforms and social media activity. And it's, it's largely invisible to people on the coast. I've gone to my colleagues at Columbia and the University of Pennsylvania, and I say, have you looked at Salem Media, the fifth largest radio network in the country? Oh, we've never heard of it. Well, they're in places that can swing votes and affect our collective future, so we should pay attention. Well, you describe how the media is so crucial to this. Uh, one of my dear friends, uh, Joel Hunter, one of the first megachurch pastors, he used to say to me, I've got my people for two hours a week if I'm lucky, and Fox News has them 24-7, and I can't compete. Absolutely. And again, tragically, there are all kinds of congregations where pastors find that their congregants are listening to QAnon and not to the sermon from the pulpit. There's a very interesting new organization called the American Values Coalition that is actually gathering groups of pastors to, to get together and discuss how to respond to this because it's causing a crisis within the Christian faith. You can't follow Jesus and QAnon at the same time. You have a you have a line here in your book that I just underlined over and over again, and it's the thing that I don't know really how to quite deal with. The cumulative effect is the creation of a parallel universe of information. The results have been devastating to American democracy as two parts of our country constantly talk past each, each other. This whole notion of the truth, uh, what people hear is the truth, what they hear at all, this information problem may be the biggest threat to democracy we have right now. Absolutely. And if you go back into the history of the Council for National Policy, you have Paul Weyrich and a manifesto he was connected with where he, he lays out the plan. And he says, what we have to do is pull people away from institutions like higher education, like public schools, like professional journalism, and create a system where they're living within our world of information. And when you have people in that parallel information system, you can get them to do pretty much anything you want. It's been interesting. I've, I've looked at one video interview recently with a woman who was saying she'd rather have Putin as president than Biden. And you just think, oh my goodness, how do you win people back? You also are critical in your book, rightly so, of what you call some of the coastal elites, liberal left people who just write all these people off uh, who they don't have any relationship to. But you know, when you think about it, if some of the people in my Michigan and your Oklahoma, if all they hear is what they're hearing in their alternate reality universe, if that's all they hear, it's not hard to understand why they think what they think. Of course. It's, it's what I call the wallpaper effect. And let's think about how it works. You go to church and your pastor who's connected to the Family Research Council gives you a sermon that he, he got off their website. And then you drive home and you have bought radio on, on the car radio and they're telling you the same thing. And then you go on Facebook to see how your relatives are doing and they're all 
throwing this stuff from the Daily Caller at you. And these are all Council for National Policy organizations, and they all look like they're independent sources. But if the wallpaper is 360 degrees, if somebody tells you that they read something in the Associated Press, that becomes the outlier. And when this council connects and coordinates all that media... You have a total problem. And people say, oh, don't the Democrats do this or that? The Democrats have various organizations, but they are not networked in the same way. So again, another superpower of the Council for National Policy is that they will get major donors, and that has included the DeVos family of your Michigan, along with the Prince family married into them. Who are there, often there at the meetings, these people. Oh yeah, they are treated like royalty there, and they've been the, the core donors for a lot of the organizations. But there are, there are other families that are less well-known that also move billions of dollars And then they are involved in trading donor activity with the Koch network. And then you throw in individual donors who contribute through donor-advised funds, they're called, like the National Christian Foundation. So you are moving millions and millions of dollars through these networks. And then you go to foundations like the Bradley Foundation in Wisconsin, which has been giving money to organizations and individuals who have been undermining the electoral process for years. So you've got a massive amount. And the, the deal with the, the meetings is that they'll, and, and there, are, there are videos online that have been leaked to research organizations that show this, where they have Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, and Cleta Mitchell, one of their lawyers who's expert on, on subverting elections, And they're getting up and doing PowerPoints in front of the donors and in front of the media owners and in front of the, what what they call them grassroots organizations, but they're really AstroTurf groups like the National Rifle Association and the Susan B. Anthony list. So they give their presentations, they go into session and they say, I'll do this, you do that. And it works like a corporate machine. So let me bring in another text here. Uh, Jesus said in John, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free or set you free. We hear that, and it's a lovely thing to hear. But this is core to our peril to democracy right now. The opposite of of that text is, if you don't know the truth, and you're believing things that aren't the truth, you're not free, you're captive. So a whole lot of people out there are not hearing the truth, seeing the truth, and they're captive to lies. So how do we deal with this issue of truth and information. And this council is really, uh, to be blunt, systematically connecting and coordinating lies and propaganda. Yes, but it's, it's also shaping entire attitudes. When I talked about that manifesto earlier, it also ties into what they call Seven Mountains Dominionism, where in order to enforce your authoritarian theocracy, on the rest of the population, you need to take over parts of society that include education, entertainment, news, business, government. And so they've been doing this systematically. And one of the things that we've been losing is the middle. I'm troubled by how Christianity is becoming polarized. And certainly you have a lot of attention in the news media to the Christianity of the right, And you have a growing amount of attention to the Christianity of the left, 
But what we're missing is the Christianity of the middle. And we're losing the politics of the middle at the same time. And so if you want to look at these states where the elections are having a disproportionate impact on our national future, and given the the environmental crisis, the future of the world, you can't just discount middle-class white Christian voters. You can't say, oh, they're the enemy. And I feel as though a lot of the people that I grew up with feel like like they don't belong anywhere. There's, you know, the, the right is trying to pull them over with these fabricated and mendacious issues, the way they characterize abortion and LGBT issues. But they're not sure that the left is really speaking to them. I often say, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. And I think the best response to a religious right is actually not a religious left. How do we go deeper? How do we ask what Jesus is saying here, what he's teaching and what it means for us now? You mentioned Paul Weirich. I want to go to this key issue. Paul Weirich said, and you quoted him, I don't want everybody to vote. Now, back to my friend Rob Shank. He said there's a tremendous fear in these meetings of demographic changes, a tremendous fear of more people voting and people voting who are black, who are brown, uh, who are immigrants, who are seen as uh, having different values from different countries. Parasites is a word he said is often used of them. And he said it's, it's here white, wealthy men who are profiting from a system with certain rules and they're successful under those rules, but they're afraid of the rules changing. And if black and brown people vote and have more influence, the rules might change and they won't be as successful. Then he said, what they really say is that overtly in these meetings, they say, well, blacks have been drawn into the democratic plantation and they bought them off with handouts and, and they don't even know what they're voting for when they go to the polls. And so getting those people to vote less is our goal here. So voter restriction is, in fact, needed and necessary. And back to your Calvinist point, which is very deep in all this stuff, that the country should be run by the elect, by the elect God has chosen, and they think they're the elect. Dominion is theology. You talk about most people don't know that, what it is. But it's the idea that it should be run, the country, by certain people. And these people feel like... (laughs) They're the Calvinists who should still run the country, and they're afraid of black and brown people or immigrants changing the rules, and the rules exist for them to run the country. I found that just chilling, how they talk about black and brown voters. Yeah, and it's also chilling the way they've been subverting some of the black and the Hispanic vote. They're working a lot through Pentecostal churches and charismatic communities, you know, they start with the pastors who are the leaders of their congregations. And if you look through the membership of the Council for National Policy, there are a number of pastors, including African-American pastors, who are expanding their reach. And if you look at their actual policies and what they mean in terms of the education and infrastructure and basic well-being of Americans who are not wealthy, these people are not serving their followers well. I was struck, I want to give you a chance to speak to where we go from here. 
your epilogue here is quite stunning how these two uh, Texan insurgents who took over the Baptist Convention, they were put in stained glass windows at the Southwestern Seminary Chapel, and because of scandals and the rest, they finally got taken down. And you have a line here that I love. You end the book with this. In Fort Worth, this is where the seminary is, the stained glass pastors <laughs> were replaced by clear window panes. On sunny days, the gallery is flooded with bright Texas light. I love that ending. How do we flood this situation with that kind of bright light and tell the truth and make people see how faith is being abused and distorted and used for money and power? How do we, how do we make this light shine? Well, I think, first of all, we don't write off any of our fellow citizens. We don't say, I'm educated, you're not. I live here, you live there. You don't let them exaggerate our divisions because that's where their success lies. And it requires some listening. It requires respect, even when people say things you disagree with. And then one thing that I urge people to do is to find a common frame of reference. So sometimes people will say, I hate the New York Times and CNN. And you say, well, what about the Wall Street Journal? They say, well, yeah, that's conservative. And you say, okay, let's go to the news pages of the Wall Street Journal because they're accurate, factual reporting. Let's find the common ground, figure out what's really important, right, in our lives, in our daily lives, in our kitchen table issues, and put aside the false and the fabricated and inflated issues that they're pushing at us and say, what do we want for our families and our children and our communities? And I don't know that it's possible to do this fast enough I also think that Americans have been asleep. They assume that their democratic process would bump along the way it has for over 200 years. Well, it's in crisis right now, and it might end. And if everybody who cared about our future would inform themselves and go and vote, you might get another reprieve. But if you don't, the Council for National Policy and its affiliates are laying the groundwork for ways to claim the 2024 election, regardless of the popular vote. In which case, it's back to the catacombs, right? You will have many repressive and restrictive and anti-democratic laws passed and confirmed in courts where they've made their appointments, which do not correspond to the majority of American public opinion. But as you say, theocrats don't care about public opinion because they think they're taking orders from God in order to dominate the rest of us. My fear is that this could lead to social conflict. And you and I have seen what wars and political violence look like. And it's the last thing I want. But the only way around it that I can see is massive engagement. And this is not a time for people to say that abortion is a litmus test issue on which all of our public life should be based, right? You lay the facts on the table and you work out a way to live together and you focus on what we need to function as a country. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.